We've been doing a series for the last several weeks through this book, and uh, today we're in chapter 15, and um, we're going to talk about staying the course. You know, any journey you're on always offers opportunities to get sidetracked and to sort of divert and get away from whatever that journey may be. We travel, when we travel, we travel with two kids now, a uh, four-year-old and a two-year-old, and so uh, my family uh, lives about 11 hours away. And um, and even this year, you know, we we vacationed up in the Panhandle, and so that's about a six-hour drive. And long drive with a four-year-old and a two-year-old has lots of bathroom stops and, you know, begging for snacks. And so a lot of of things to kind of pull you off the interstate and get you somewhere else. And then there's just the whole temptation to completely go crazy um, at some point uh, during that process, right? But, you know, in general, in the journey of life in general, there are always opportunities for us to get sidetracked from whatever our purpose is, whether it's the journey of your marriage, right? Whether it's your your work and your career, whatever it may be, there's opportunities for us to kind of lose focus and to forget the purpose of whatever that area of life serves or whatever we're supposed to be doing. And it's no different in the church. Life offers opportunities in the church for us to completely get sidetracked from what's going on and what we're supposed to be doing. And in Acts 15, we're going to see the church encounter a critical moment that had the potential to completely throw them off their message and their mission. It even had the potential to ruin their fellowship as a church. And to understand the conflict, we're going to need to start in chapter 11, where we left off last week, and then we're going to kind of summarize chapters 13 and 14 to see what's happening here in Acts. And what we're going to see is the importance of staying focused and on course both in the church And in our personal lives as individual believers, if you're a believer this morning, and as we seek to live on mission with Christ in the world, and all these opportunities arise to get us sidetracked, we've got to learn to guard against some of the key temptations that come our way to sideline us and the mission that God's called us to. So look with me, starting in Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 26. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, excuse me, spoke to the Hellenists, that's the Greek-speaking Gentiles, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So I want to read just kind of a few passages set up where we're going to get to, which is Acts 15, uh, that whole that whole chapter there in Acts 15. So what happens here is you, what you see happening is that as people are continue to be scattered out preaching the gospel, most people are focusing on taking it to the Jews. But there's this group of people that say, we're going to take it to the Gentiles, right? And they're focusing on that. And as they do that, you see that phrase there, the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number believe and turn to the Lord. And so kind of revivals breaking out here among the Gentiles, right? People are coming to know Christ and you're on course here for the Gentile community to outnumber the Jewish community in the church. And that's a big deal from a movement that started in Jerusalem with what was predominantly a Jewish people saying that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And now all of a sudden this movement is taking on a whole different look as more and more non-Jews, that's what Gentiles are, non-Jews come to faith in Christ and that number is about to begin to outnumber, if it hasn't already, the number of Jews. That is where the church is headed. Now when you get over to Acts 13, Verses 1 through 3, we go back to this church in Antioch. It says, now in in Antioch, where where it's really beginning to take hold, and they're beginning to see a lot of Gentiles come to know the Lord, 
It says, now there were in the church in Antioch prophets and teachers. So in other words, it was a gifted church. It, it, as the gospel rooted there and people began to come to know the Lord and grow in the Lord, God began to gift them with leaders. And, and when you look in, 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 in the beginning verses there, you see it's a diverse people. It's not just a bunch of Jewish guys anymore. It's people from different places and different backgrounds. It's a multi-ethnic looking church. And what we see here is in verse 2, it says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, that's who we know as the Apostle Paul, for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So Saul is now here in Antioch serving with Barnabas because when Barnabas was sent down to check on the work in Antioch from Jerusalem, he went and got so excited about it, he went and found, found Saul in Tarsus. That's where he had retreated to. He went and found him there and brought him to Antioch to kind of dig in with him uh, to help people grow and help us further establish the church there. And the church is very established now, and they've decided it's time for us to be a sending church. They were more concerned, you might say, with their sending capacity than their seating capacity. And they said, we, we, want to go, we want to send you out from here to plant more churches and to do more work. And what do they do? They send the two most gifted leaders they have. You say, well, there, maybe there were more gifted leaders than that. The only two we know by name, really, other than the few mentioned there in verse 1, that had ministry that's highlighted in Acts are Barnabas and Saul, who we know as the Apostle Paul. And so they take the two guys that helped really establish it and the two guys who the Lord was working through in a mighty way, and they send them off on mission. You see the prioritization of the mission in the church. And the, this is what we know of as the Apostle Paul's first missionary journey. That's what we traditionally know it as. That's what begins there in chapters 13 and 14. And you see they go to Cyprus, preaching the gospel, teaching in the synagogue. They go to Antioch and Pisidia as the next place where we get Paul's first sermon, which sounds a lot like Peter's sermons, which is just gospel-rooted about Jesus being the Messiah. And he's died, on, he's died on the cross. He's risen from the grave. But the Jews begin to, some of the Jews and some of the leadership of them begin to stir up the crowds and the Gentiles even against them because they're jealous of these crowds that they're drawing. And in verse 46 of chapter 13, the Apostle Paul says, Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And what you're seeing is a further and further shift of the ministry of the Apostle Paul shifting more and more towards the Gentile community. And in verse 49, it says, when he, after he says that, it says, he continues on in ministry. It says, the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region as the gospel goes forth. And so they go on to, we see Iconium and Lystra. And when they get to Lystra, it's a very idolatrous city. They're worshiping Greek gods and things of that nature. They actually think Paul and Barnabas are Greek gods, and they start worshiping them. And they freak out, like, don't worship us. Did you hear about what happened to Herod in chapter 12 of Acts? People started worshiping him, acting like he was God, and he didn't give glory to God, and God killed him. They're like, we're not God. You know, please don't, you know, don't worship us. And so, but... All kinds of messy stuff's happening, but at the end of the day, the gospel's going forward. The church is growing. Gentiles are coming to faith. Non-Jewish people are coming to Christ by the droves. And so they returned to Antioch in Syria, right? The, the sending church that sent them to give a report of what's been going on in this journey. And in verse 27 of chapter 14, it says, They arrived and gathered the church together. And here's what they tell them how God has opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. That's the highlight of everything they've seen. Crazy stories like people trying to worship us, people thinking Barnabas is Zeus, can you believe it? I mean, all these crazy stories, but the highlight is this, you ought to see, you should see what God is doing in the lives of the Gentiles. Man, the door is wide, people are coming to faith. And here is going to come one of the biggest crisis critical moments in the early church's life. Acts chapter 15 sits right in the middle of Acts for a reason. It is a turning point. 
And the church had an incredible opportunity here to move forward and continue on focus or to completely get off track and for the movement to kind of just... But as we know, the work of God's church, the work of the gospel is unstoppable because God has deemed it so and he works to preserve and protect his church here. Look with me in Acts chapter 15 starting in verse 1. We're going to see the problem they encountered here. It says, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. Here's what they were saying. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way to the church, by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, is continuing to tell people, right? And it brought great joy to all the brothers. Verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So what's happening here? Here's the situation. You have this church full of both Jews and Gentiles in Antioch. And this group shows up and begin to say, you know, it's great that you're a Christian. It's great that you believe Jesus is the Messiah, but that's not quite enough. If you want to be saved, if you want to miss hell and gain heaven, then you need to be circumcised and keep the law. It's great that you're a Christian, but it's not enough. You also need to be Jewish. And this is a big issue because what's happening here is this group is challenging the very nature of the gospel. And they're saying Jesus isn't enough, it's Jesus plus. And anytime you have Jesus plus, whether it's Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus plus the law, Jesus plus works, Jesus plus baptism, Jesus plus church membership, Jesus plus anything equals not say salvation, not gospel. It's a complete diversion from it. And so Paul and Barnabas are sent to settle this issue, so they go to Jerusalem, the mother church, where all the apostles are. And they show up in Jerusalem and they're like, here's what's going on, some folks came down here, Sowing some false teaching. What in the world are we supposed to do? And sure enough, as they're sharing just the good things that's happening among the Gentiles, some believers who were Pharisees, it says, show up. These people were Pharisees who had believed that Christ is the Messiah. Because they were Pharisees, that was a fairly easy transition because they believed in the resurrection from the dead, unlike the other really popular sect back then, the Sadducees, who didn't believe in a resurrection. So these Pharisees had understood, okay, there is a resurrection. Oh, Jesus is raised from the dead. Not such a far stretch for me. They've come to faith. And now, though, what we see here is they're saying, listen, for Gentiles to, they're trying to hold on to a past model. In the Old Testament, for a Gentile to come to faith, he had to ultimately become a Jew, right? And to become one, become one of them, he needed to be circumcised and begin to keep the law. That's why we had this thing, they had this thing called God-fearers. And these were people who believed in the God, who believed in Jehovah God, who believed in the God of Israel, but they weren't full converts in the sense of, I believe, but not enough to get circumcised and to begin keeping the whole law, right? And so you had this kind of this uh, dual class here. You had, you had the God-fearers, and then there were the, the, full, the full converts. And so what they're saying is, listen, we need to do it the way we did it, no, the way, we, the way we've been doing it. If they want to come to faith, isn't this, isn't this a Jewish thing? He's the Jewish Messiah. I mean, shouldn't that mean that they need to get circumcised and keep the whole law? And what they mean by the law is not the moral law. That was understood. It was the ceremonial law and the dietary laws and things of that nature. And what's at stake is the very core of the message. It's a conflict that has arisen that could completely distract them from what the true gospel is and divide the community and forfeit the nature of the mission. So here's the solution they come up with. Look at verse 6, chapter 15, through verse 21. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. 
And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. Now, what does Peter do? He reminds them of the Cornelius story that we looked at last week in Acts chapter 10. Now, it's been as many as 10 years have passed in this gap. Several years have passed. But this story is still important. So he calls it and says, hey, you remember. How did, how did God save them? They were, they were cleansed by faith. This is a matter of grace. It's grace through faith. That's something you see being communicated by Peter here in Acts. Before Paul starts, before we get where we have like Romans and Galatians and those rich books in the New Testament that spell this out so clearly for us, we see it right from the beginning here in Acts. And Peter's warning them about putting God to the test. He's saying, listen, God has made it clear how this works, what the gospel is, how people are saved, who's in the church, who can come in, who's welcome. You're testing him. He's made it very clear. He poured the Holy Spirit out on them, and now you're trying to add circumcision. You're trying to add the law. You're trying to change the rules. You're trying to add the rules. You're trying to preserve the past at the expense of the future. God's not going to stand for it. He highlights there in verse 11, the grace, we're saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this, that passage is rich and explaining grace and faith. Look at verse 12. All the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related, now Simeon is just another way of saying his, his Simon Peter. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is, is, as it is written, After this I will return, and I will build the tent of David that has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Verse 19 is a key verse to the whole chapter. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogue. So James here, who speaks up in this moment after Peter says his piece, is the half-brother of Jesus who came to faith in Jesus after the resurrection of Jesus, right? You see your brother raised from the dead, you're kind of like, okay, I'm in, right? Before that he was like, I don't know, you're my brother, right? But now he's like, okay, you're... I'm in, right? He's, he's risen from the dead, and he becomes a pillar, really, in the early church, and many believe the lead pastor at the church at Jerusalem. So he's likely operating sort of as chairman of the elders here, a senior pastor, whatever you want to call it, uh, in a way, at this church. And so you have this council of the elders at Jerusalem plus the apostles who are, who are talking about all this, and James speaks up here, and he quotes from Amos to reinforce that seeing Gentiles come in has always been God's plan. Peter didn't pull this out of left field. It's not just some obscure verse in the Old Testament that he's claiming. This is all through the Old Testament. Look, even Amos talks about this. And then he gives that key verse in verse 19 about not doing anything that's going to make it more difficult on Gentiles coming to faith, not to trouble them. It literally means to make more difficulty, more difficult, to add to the difficulty. And what's at debate here, like I said, is not the moral law, 
None of the Gentiles and none of the Jews were debating whether or not it was still a sin to commit murder or sexual immorality or to lie or to commit idolatry or any of these things. What, was, what they were really discussing is the ceremonial law, the washings, the, the dietary laws, the laws about what kind of fabrics could touch each other on your clothes, the laws about whether you could eat shellfish and unclean, what food sacrificed to idols, things that still had maybe a little more blood in them than they than, than what a Jew was used to eating. These were the things they were debating. And in verse 20, James, however, after clearing up in verse 19, listen, we're not going to get distracted from the gospel here. In verse 20, he does see an issue that needs to be dealt with, and that's the need to make it possible for both Gentile believers and Jewish believers to have fellowship. So that's why he gives the guidelines he does. We'll explain about that more here in a minute. And then they, they go to implement their plan in verse 22. They sit, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. So you've got all the leadership plus the church body coming together. It's a great picture of both having um, leader, spiritual leadership in the church and a, a congregational church polity. And they, the whole church, they agreed to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And they sent Judas called Bersabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. Here's the letter they sent back to Antioch to the Gentile believers and Jewish believers that were there. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who were of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Verse 24. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. In other words, know this. The apostles, the leaders here, we didn't send them. These are rogue agents. Verse 25. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you don't have to worry about Barnabas and Paul pulling this out of thin air. We're sending proof that they came here and we discussed this. Verse 27, we have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit, the most important thing here, and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. I mean, that really boiled it down, right? I mean, they took like 600 and something laws, and they, and they said, here, watch what you eat. Don't be immoral. Verse 30. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. So they settled this issue in such a way that it brought great joy to the church, and they continued on, on course, reaching Gentiles, seeing people come to faith. And what we see in this conflict, what is unfolding here, are three areas, three exit ramps that the church has to be careful and that Christians have to be careful not to take that will get you completely off course in what God has called us to do in the great commandment and the great commission, loving God, loving people, and making disciples. Number one, diversion from the message. That was the first exit ramp they had to avoid. That was the first thing they had to watch for, that they don't get diverted from the message of the gospel. We see this is an issue, a gospel issue. Verse one, you have to do this to be saved. What you did isn't enough. Believing in Jesus isn't enough. You've got to do this to be saved. It's a salvation. This first group, they're saying this is a salvation issue. This is a who's in and who's out issue. But the gospel they had been preaching, that wasn't what they were preaching. Acts chapter 13, verses 38 and through 39, the apostle Paul said this, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, Jesus. And by him, Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. In other words, the gospel they were preaching that was catching fire among the Gentiles and catching fire among many Jews was this. What the Old Testament law couldn't do, he can do. 
The law could not save you. He can. The law could not justify you. He can. The law could not set you free from your sinful nature. He can. And so he was saying, listen, the power of salvation is in Jesus. It's in this gospel. That wasn't what these guys come to the table with in chapter 15, but they're altering it. They're trying to divert them from that message. Peter says it clearly. We will be saved with the grace of the Lord Jesus. James says, we will not trouble those who turn to God. We're not going to add and cause difficulty to the gospel message. Let's not muddy the waters. The gospel's offensive enough without, having, without telling them, oh, great, I'm glad you believe in Jesus. You need to sign up for surgery next week. I mean, you know, why did the men's ministry take it off? You know, I don't know. There is nothing more important. Listen, here's the, here's the real issue, though. It's really, it's kind of comedic, but here's the, here's the issue. There is literally nothing more important than, than getting the gospel right. And gospel clarity and gospel centrality is, is critical. And the moment you start adding it, even something that they held dear, that literally is what the outward symbol that they were the people of God was this. They are circumcised and they eat weird food that other people, they don't eat all the food other people eat. They have weird dietary laws that make them kind of strange to other people. That had, that had set them apart as the visible people of God for generations. That was a hard thing to let go of. That was embedded deep into their culture, into who they are and how they identified themselves as the people of God. But now, to add that to Jesus and salvation by grace through faith was to completely divert from the gospel message and Peter and James and all these guys and Paul, they're saying, we can't do that. And we have to, in the church, continually contend and fight for gospel clarity and centrality in our lives and our church because it's very easy to get off course and not even mean to. Not because you're like, I'm against the gospel and I don't believe the gospel, but not to even realize culturally and, and how we, what, we, what we make priority and how we do things that we, if we're not careful, we'll muddy the water and make things less clear. That's why when we take the Lord's Supper at the end of the service today, it helps center us and bring us back and focus us on right. We do this in remembrance of Him to show us that the gospel is our deepest need. Christ is our deepest need. That the heartbeat of the Christian faith is the Jesus and His person and his work, his death, his burial, his resurrection, Christ, his person, his work, the fact that he is God in the flesh, that he is the son of God, that is the very heartbeat of all that we do that drives everything and it's the gospel and the gospel alone that saves us. And so it's important that we fight and contend to keep that at the center. Because if we get the message wrong just a little, if you just get off a little bit, it throws off the whole thing. It's kind of like there's some things when you're in the kitchen cooking, there's some things that if you get the ingredients wrong, everything still turns out okay. But there's some things, right? You get the ingredients wrong, and it's, it's not even the same thing anymore, right? That's my cooking. Right? It, it's, it's like it doesn't turn out to be what it's supposed to. And the gospel is the kind of thing, once you add any ingredient or take out an ingredient, it's no longer the gospel. It's got to be served up pure and undiluted. Now, so you can't add to it. You can't subtract from it. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. We've missed the point. And a little diversion off course when it comes to the gospel is a radical departure. And when someone says, well, it's Jesus plus whatever, what they're actually doing is serving up a completely new dish that's not the gospel that has been handed down to us from generation to generation. And if we want to see the kind of life change that brings lasting fruit, we've got to serve up the true gospel strong and undiluted 
Because it produces, it's the gospel of grace that produces life change, not the law or some kind of behavior modification we want to force. It's the work of the gospel in the heart by the power of the Holy Spirit that brings about life change. Not the laws we lay down, not the rules we make, not the guardrails we want to set up. And I think maybe for some of these people, the problem here is that did it just seem too easy? Just seemed too easy. It's been so hard for so long, it seemed like to them. You know, now all of a sudden these people are coming in and you're telling me they're just as much people of the kingdom as we are and they didn't have to do all this to identify themselves, just believe, just faith. What about circumcision? What about all the law? What about, what about, what about, what about? You see, even good people in good churches have to constantly strive to keep the gospel clear and central because churches are tempted to be, for instance, increasingly pragmatic. And to some level, we're all pragmatic to some degree. Right? We've all got common sense, and we need to use it. But you, it's, there's a pull to be increasingly pragmatic, increasingly political, increasingly trendy, increasingly self-help oriented. But our message is the gospel. Churches are tempted to elevate other things to the level of the gospel. But our message is the gospel. Churches are tempted to add to it, to subtract from it, but our message is simply the gospel. And even in your personal life, you can somehow think the gospel saved you, but that your effort is somehow going to keep you. Look at Galatians. What are you people doing? And he has to explain it to them. Like, no, you're, you came by the power of the Spirit, not by your works. You came through the gospel, not by your works. And recall them to understand and apply the gospel. Even Peter, like we talked about last week, had a time in his life where the Apostle Paul had to address him and say, you're not walking in step with the gospel. We have to constantly look at ourselves and realize that the good news of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, Jesus in our place, the gospel of grace, not works, not law, grace is the central message of the church. And so we have to be careful that we don't in any way divert from that message. Number two, second temptation is division among the membership. How do you have a church made up of Jews and Gentiles who have hated each other for so long and now they're supposed to be brothers and sisters? How do they have fellowship together when most Jews found what the, the Gentiles' way of life to be completely offensive and gross? When you look at the list that James gives them of the rules he lays down in the letter, it may seem arbitrary or random, but it's not. They were picked to preserve the unity of the church and the mission of the church. See, things polluted by idols, what's been strangled from blood, uh, what's been strangled and what comes from blood. These, these were all addressing dietary law issues. All three of them. And what James didn't want was a Gentile causing a problem at the potluck meal because he has his, you know, blood-soaked T-bone steak right there. And everybody's like, I'm not sitting with that guy. How's this, how does this, how's this guy even a Christian? You know? And you say, that just sounds absurd to me. But I'm telling you, after thousands of years of being identified by this, this is a big deal, right? And so what he, he wants them to be able to hang out together and have fellowship together. He didn't want them coming in with food that had been sacrificed to idols that would deeply offend their Jewish Christian brothers and sisters and drive them away from the table because they didn't know how to handle it. And then he throws sexual immorality in there. And you say, well, that seems kind of random. Well, this is a reminder that the moral law is still binding, that we're not throwing out the moral law. And he said, well, why did you pick that one? Because that was the one they had the most trouble with, right? <laughs> and here's what I mean by that. It was very common in their pagan culture to be very sexually promiscuous and to have lots of sexual immorality. And that not only was immoral to a Jew, it was also unclean. 
And so in a way, it, we're still dealing with cleanliness issues. And he's saying, listen, you can't bring that into the church. You want to divide the church? Bring that into the church. You can't bring that into the church. So he's reminding them of something that they should know, but letting them know, listen, you've got to leave that old lifestyle behind. All of these were things that could destroy the fellowship and make it difficult for a Jewish Christian and a Gentile Christian to have a meal together. And the early church contended for the gospel, but also for the integrity of the fellowship of the church as a community in unity and omission. Because they knew that a divided church would portray a deluded witness. It just would. It still does today. And it matters how we treat one another, right? A church is not simply a baptism or convert factory. It's to make disciples who live together as a family to some, to, to, is in a spiritual sense. And Christ has called us to advance the gospel in the context of community and family endeavor as a church. If there's not a healthy culture of love and unity in the community, the mission won't endure in the church because culture matters. Because division always thwarts purpose. You, you can apply it. You can look at a sports analogy of a team. How many, not a lot of championship teams are deeply divided teams. You show me a team where the coach and the best player are like yelling at each other on the sideline and, they can't, and players are throwing, you know, getting into it after games and brawling with, well, I'll show you a team that's probably not a championship level team in most, any sport. And because ultimately that culture, that lack of community within will divert them from their purpose, will totally throw them off course and divide them. The house divided cannot stand. Jesus even said that, right? And in the same way, in the church, division dilutes our witness. Division gets us off course from our purpose. And as a Jesus church, as a, as a gospel church, love in one another, striving to live in on mission, in unity, those things are priorities. And it's it's that church that's looking to live on mission together that's the church that Jesus is sending out into the world, challenging one another with the world, word, making disciples hand in hand together. But let me be very clear. Unity for the sake of unity. Unity are not around the gospel. Unity not around the gospel of Christ and the mission of Christ is <clears throat> pointless. A church that is unified and off mission, a church that is unified and inward focused, not reaching people, not thinking about those outside the four walls that they sit in that morning, a church that serves themselves and is only focused on bettering themselves is a church unified around a perverse and distorted church culture, not the gospel of Jesus. Unity is pointless if it's not gospel-centered, if it's not mission-focused. That's not the unity that Christ calls us to. He calls us to our unity around Him and around the Great Commission. And Jesus said that they would, that we would know, or excuse me, other people would know that we belong to him by what? Our love for one another. So it matters. Because here's the deal. If we don't fulfill the great commandment of loving God and loving others, starting in here and also out there, we don't get the opportunity to fulfill the Great Commission. If we don't walk in the Great Commandment of loving God and loving people, we do not get opportunities to fulfill the Great Commission. They, they go hand in hand. The third thing we see, the third potential temptation, the third, third potential off-ramp from getting them off course is distraction from the mission. Just being distracted. They could have got divided as a community. They, they could have departed. They could have diverted from their message, or they could have just gotten distracted from what the real mission was. This moment had the potential to do that. There are a lot more Gentiles than Jews in the world, 
and the Gentiles are coming to faith in mass, and the Jews are about to be outnumbered by the Gentiles. And then James makes it clear, right, that this Amos has said, other prophets have said, this, this was part of the deal. God has a plan for the Gentiles. And then that key verse we said, verse 19, my judgments, we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. He's not only saying let's keep the gospel the gospel, he's saying let's not hinder the mission. <laughs> Why would we trouble them as they come to God? Why would we make it more hard on them? The word trouble means add extra difficulty. See, they didn't want to hinder the spread of the gospel among two peoples, which was all peoples, Gentiles and Jews. Let me explain. They didn't want to hinder the gospel among Gentiles because circumcision had already been a deterrent in keeping Gentiles from coming to faith through Judaism. And so they didn't want to add that. First of all, it's not a part of the gospel, and it was going to completely muddy the waters and, and to hinder the mission and keep people from coming to, to faith. But also, the Jewish dietary laws, if the, that would have made the Gentiles keep Jewish dietary laws to walk in fellowship with them in Christ, you know what? It would have made it nearly impossible for Gentiles to carry out their life in the world. I mean, to completely change their culture and to completely adapt, it's going to make it hard to go to work and eat lunch beside somebody. The, the same wedge that had kind of come between the Jews and the Gentiles that it made it more increasingly hard for J the Jews to, to reach Gentiles because they added all these laws on top of the laws that was given to them that made it harder and harder to fulfill their mission. They can bring that right back into the church, and now a Gentile comes to faith in Christ, and they're so worried about keeping all these new rules and changing their culture, they're not even thinking about their coworker that needs Jesus. And they would invite them to lunch, but they're not sure what they can eat or what they'll order, if they can be around it or eat it or what, you know. It could totally hinder the mission among the Gentiles. But at the same time, they didn't want to risk the spread of the gospel among the Jews. As James says, listen, in every city, Moses has got people that proclaim his teachings. There's a lot of Jews everywhere, and we're hoping that more and more of them are going to come to faith in Christ. And you know what? If they look at this church as this rogue group of people that they see as gross because it's completely against everything that they've been taught to believe, they're not going to hear the gospel. They're not going to attend services. They're not going to stay for the fellowship meal. They're not going to build relationships. You can't repulse them and at the same time attract them. So they're protecting the fellowship of the church, but it's in the context of protecting, protecting the mission. They aren't protecting a holy huddle, but a missional community. And that's a big deal. Because by keeping the door open wide to the Gentile community as the gospel has made it and not making it narrower than God had made it, they full well knew they were going to, they were going to be outnumbered at some point by Gentiles in the church. What are they doing? They're completely giving the ministry away. They're saying, it's okay. It's not my ministry. It's not my church. It's not my mission. It's not my... It's okay. It's okay that, 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 that those of us who were given the promises in the Old Testament, those of us who are children of Abraham, it's okay that, that God is now saying these people are children of Abraham because they come by faith in Christ, and it's okay that we're going to be outnumbered. It's okay. It made it a lot easier to give it away when they knew it wasn't theirs because they're laser-focused on the mission. They didn't get sidetracked by the conflict, and we've got to avoid being distracted from the mission. And we're so easily distracted. We're just so easily distracted. It's just in life in general, right? I'm, I'm very easily distracted. You may not know that about me, but I'm very easily 
distract. Christy can send me to the grocery store, right, and give me a list of things to get. She don't really do that anymore uh, because she says I'm way too expensive to send to the grocery store because I go in and I've got a list, but I'm distracted over here. And, I'm, and you do the same thing, right? You go into public, you forget what you're even there for. All you're thinking about is like the bakery section and, and uh, you're lost over there, right? Or you're lost. I, I go to the meat section and I'll stand and look at various cuts of steak and not buy a single one and then forget why I came in. Like I get home and Christy's like, did you get ice? And I'm like, no, but I've got like these cool cookies that are bacon and peanut butter flavored. I want to try, you know, <laughs> distracted, right? Just to hate, you remember Blockbuster? For, for those of y'all who are under the age of 22, Blockbuster uh, is this place where you would go and rent a movie and then take it home and watch it, and then you would return the movie. And if you didn't return the movie, at some point your credit would be bad, and you, you know they'd be looking for you, and you'd you know you take it back, and you'd own four thousand dollars for this ten dollar movie, you know. But we used to go to Blockbuster, you know, we'd say, we're going to rent a movie and go home back home and watch it tonight. And so we'd show up at Blockbuster at like 6.30 and leave there at 8.30. And a lot of times I'd have a movie because I'd get, just get distracted. Like, oh, look at this movie. Oh, maybe we should watch, you know. And I'm just very easily, just, now I do the same thing with Netflix. Drives me crazy, right? It's like great night to me is sitting at home searching Netflix um, without watching movie. We're easily distracted. I am. Maybe you are. Churches are easily distracted. Christians are easily distracted. We're so easily distracted in these little missions in life. Don't you think it's easy to get distracted from the ultimate mission? It really is. In church, we can get distracted by all the other things the church can do and fail to do the one thing Jesus said you better do. We can have meetings and events and fail to make disciples. Believer, we can get distracted by all the other things we can do and want to do in life, both in church and in the world, and fail to live on mission and be busy and missionless. Busy and disconnected. We can also get distracted by just focusing on the wrong things. Let me give you a few ways. We can make church about us instead of Jesus. That's the professional critic. Way more concerned with what they think about the music or the sermon or the ministries or whatever than what Jesus thinks about it. Some people actually think God likes their kind of music and nobody else's. I've been told close to that. What kind of music do you think God likes? What kind of life? <laughs> Making disciples of you instead of Jesus? That's another one. Why would I do that? How would I do that? Beware of getting distracted by all the things Scripture, for instance, doesn't forbid, but you do. That you may have a problem with due to your culture, your upbringing, your church background, or whatever. But the Scripture might not prohibit, but maybe you do. And you don't think that person is as godly or can't walk with Christ or can't be in leadership or can't do this because of your own personal conviction about this that you don't even have a verse for or that you've taken a verse out of context for or that maybe it's a matter of conscience and maybe a gray matter in Scripture that you've applied. There's a world of things that we could talk about. And what we're really doing is we're saying, you've got to be like me. And they don't. They've got to be like Jesus. Or we can choose maintenance over mission. Some may would rather protect systems and styles and ways of doing things, whether that be written or unwritten, traditions, nothing wrong with traditions and things of that like, but if we choose to maintain and we say, well, I'm going to focus on making sure we keep things the way I feel like the way they're supposed to be and maintain the order of the day at the expense of better fulfilling the Great Commission, we're distracted. And sometimes it's good things, things we got to have, things we got to do. Last week I told you it's human nature to gravitate towards those 
like you, even not those like you, even though the gospel calls us to be diverse in the body of Christ. It's also human nature to get distracted from the mission. Human nature. It's human nature to resist change. It's human nature to like things the way they are. Doesn't make you a bad person, makes you a, a human being. See, we're not called to live by human nature. We're not called to obey human nature. We're called to walk with Christ, to fulfill the Great Commission. And the gospel calls us to get our eyes off of ourselves and onto the harvest. The early church here was laser focused on the gospel, the community, and the mission because it was filled with Christians and leaders who were focused on the same exact things. Because they, are, they learned from the one that they spent time with, those apostles, who was the ultimate laser focused, non-distracted one. The Bible says as Jesus made his way towards Jerusalem to die for our sins, there's one expression that says he says he set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. In other words, there came this point where he knew it was the time, and there I go. And he was, you remember early in Jesus' right where his ministry took off, he, he goes, he's out in the desert, and he's tempted by Satan, and he resists the temptation. There was always people clamoring for him to start an earthly kingdom. He resists the temptation because he knew, right? He had been sent for a purpose. He said, I have come to seek and save that which was lost. If I do some of these other things and I don't do that, I've diverted from the purpose for which the Father has sent me. And so he set his place like flint towards Jerusalem and he went and there on the cross, dying for our sins, rising from the grave, accomplishing the mission God sent, us for, sent him for, ascending to the right hand of the Father, coming back again one day. He is laser focused on what God's called him, what the Father has sent him to do. And as Jesus' people, right, as, as Christians who believe in Christ, who have been transformed by Christ, who are dwelt by the very Spirit of Christ, shouldn't we be laser-focused on what God has called us to do and who he's called us to be? If you're not a Christian today, you don't know if you're a Christian or not, or if you know you're not a Christian, you're just kind of here with a friend or a family member checking things out. There's a lot of messages that you can hear in the world and even in the church, right? There's one message you need to hear, and it's the gospel. Now, let's be very clear that the message you need most is the message of Jesus, that God loves you enough that even though you've sinned against him and even though you're separated from him, he's a holy God, he's a just God, that he loves you to the point that he sent Christ. He sent a way for sinners to be reconciled to God. For God so loves the world, what? He sent his only son. And that Jesus died in your place on the cross, bearing the wrath you deserve, bearing your sin in his body, bearing the wrath you deserve, was buried and three days later rose from the grave for your justification, for my justification, for our justification before God in victory over sin, death, and hell. And that if we repent and believe, we can be saved. Bottom line. What about repent and believe the gospel and you can be saved? That is the message that we've got to get out there, and that is the message that if you're an unbeliever today, that if you're not a Christian, if you're just kind of a seeker, that's the message that God wants you to hear today. I know sometimes we muddy it up. Sometimes we distort it a little bit. We don't mean to. Sometimes we can, just be, we can distract you ourselves as a church, in the church at large. That's the message, the gospel of Jesus. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I would encourage you to come to Christ. To repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ, it's by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of yourself. If you're a believer today, if you're a Christian today, 
I want to encourage you to examine your life. Are there ways, even small ways, that you've clouded or diverted from the message of the gospel? Are there, are there ways that you've sowed division or not seeked healing within the community of Christ, recon, re- reconciling relationships, relationships that need to be reconciled? Are there ways you've been distracted from the mission that God's called you to and us to as a church? Ask God to speak to you about those things. Press in. Seek Him. Repent. Confess. And let's live on mission together. We're going to pray here in just a moment as we stand and as we do that. uh, In just a moment as we stand and sing. If you need prayer for any reason. If you'd like to know what it means to be a Christian. If you would like to talk about trusting Christ as Lord. I'd love to talk with you now or after the service. But I would urge you to trust Christ this morning. If you're a believer and I can pray for you about anything. I'd love to do that during this time. Let's stand and sing together. Before we do, I'm going to pray.